0: Morning, church family. Excited to be here with you. My name is Corey. If you're a guest, uh, welcome. your are teaching pastor, and uh, excited. We have put out more Bibles. Um, something you don't we don't say a whole lot is, "Hey, grab one of those supplied Bibles." But uh, part of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, is about calling the people of Israel back to the Word of God and being and learning how to worship using the Word of God. And so we're in a very digital age, which is totally fine. Um, but my my hope over the next 16 weeks. Uh, in Nehemiah is actually to start seeing more hardback Bibles in the room. And so we'll put them out. We're going to give you a page number. We'll encourage you to bring it. You can look at it on your iPad or phone, but I do think there's something uh, to just physically feeling the Word of God uh, in your hand. And so you're going to hear us say this to you um, kind of weekly, if I may. And so we start the book of Nehemiah today. Uh, if you remember, I asked a few weeks ago, and I can ask now, how many of you have ever been through a teaching series on Nehemiah? How many of you one, two, two, two out of everyone. And so one service, we had no one. And i said, I had never preached through it. So we have no idea what we're getting ourselves into. Uh, we'll just be dependent on the word uh, and the spirit. Amen. And it is my favorite thing to do is to start a new book. Man, I, I love it. I, I didn't get to study as much as I would have liked with being sick. As you all know, I got, we got like COVID and then we got influenza A and we were just smoked for about three weeks Um, And so I've got about 25 hours in, I think, on it, Um, but I would have loved to have been put about a month in before we got to this moment. But today we do uh, start the book of Nehemiah, and uh, we cannot understand the book of Nehemiah apart from understanding the book of Ezra. And so I have to do a little bit of work in Ezra before I can really get us into Nehemiah, and so I've... Uh, I'm going to set up the book for you. Uh, It's going to take about 15 minutes. You guys handle 15 minutes of like no jokes, not a lot of humor. I just need to teach you something. Okay, I want you to learn something today. And so I know your attention span is 90 seconds statistically. So I'm going to ask for you to do that, you know, like 11 more times. And so... Um, to be clear though, Ezra and Nehemiah uh, would have been understood to be the same book. It's two different books in your Bible, but it would have been uh, understood to be at least the same book. And so you have uh, Ezra, Ezra who has been tasked with uh, building the temple and then calling the people back to the word of God. That's what Ezra is tasked with in the book of Ezra. And then you have uh, Nehemiah, which again, still the same book, but you have Nehemiah, who's writing this, who wrote in first person, you just heard. It's really like a series of journal entries that'll later shift to third person. But Nehemiah, who's been building up the wall, and he's calling people now back to worship. And so he, you have Ezra, who's building the temple, and Nehemiah, who's building the wall around the temple to keep them safe, calls them back to worship. But with Ezra, will start there. He's very uh, prophetic. He's very hard-hitting. Just picture David Seton. That's kind of who Ezra is. He's in your face, all evangelists. This is the word. Take it or leave it. This is the word of God, right? That kind of sums him up, yeah? Very compassionate, but also very matter-of-fact when it comes uh, to the word. And so God has, this is important, especially if you're a note-taker, God has put the desire into the heart of the king, in the book of Ezra, to rebuild the temple. God has also, he's the one that placed the desire in the people of Israel to come back to Jerusalem. That's very important to understand. And so you heard of a, a remnant or the people that had, that had left the exile or left the, the place that they were in, Nehemiah, said 50,000 Israelites have returned uh, to Jerusalem. And so that's important to note because all throughout the book of Nehemiah when we get there, God in his sovereignty, you're going to see will both harden and soften the hearts of both political officials as well as the people. And this isn't new, right? If we had time, I could tell you more about the book of Exodus. I'm reading currently for myself in my own Bible reading. And if you read the book of Exodus, you know that it regularly says, uh, as the plagues come, it says, and then the Pharaoh's heart was what? hardened, and the Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and the Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And then it switches and says, and God hardened the Pharaoh's heart, and then God hardened the Pharaoh's heart. Why? So he could show his position and power over that Pharaoh. That's reiterated again, even in the book of Romans, whenever he, uh, Paul, the apostle Paul talks about that. And so God is simply doing what God does, which is accomplishing and fulfilling his mission, not man's mission, but his mission. And so Ezra chapters one through six make up as best as we can tell about 80 years of the temple being rebuilt. Not by Ezra though. Ezra does not come into the book of Ezra until chapter 7. And so you have 80 years of building the temple. Then chapters 7 through 10, they make up about a year. And Ezra comes on the scene and he starts kind of preaching the gospel. Hey, there's a Messiah that's coming and building this temple. We're paving a way for someone better, for something better. There's a better covenant that's on the horizon. So all of the book is pointing to Jesus. It's in the Old Testament, but it's most certainly pointing to the Messiah. So the 50,000 have returned. The temple of the Lord has been built. Uh, Not like King Solomon built it, if you know your Bible at all, but it has been built kind of in a a way that's just a little bit less than, we'll say, than what King Solomon did. And so now you have these uh, Israelites there, they're worshiping in the book of Ezra, uh, and then they finally get to partake in the Passover meal. And I know I'm using some language you're not going to get on the first date, but just watch it again. And so they get to partake in the Passover festival for the first time in at least 100 years. They get to celebrate, like we take communion every week. They kind of get to take communion, if you think about it like that, for the first time in at least 100 years. And here's what's cool, Can I like, I'm going to be like a nerd just a little bit. I won't do it a lot today because we don't have time, but in the coming 16 weeks, I'm going to nerd out on you. Right now, if you go to, uh, I believe it's the Egyptian Museum uh, in Berlin, you will find a letter there called, wait for it, the Passover letter. Pretty, um, you know, they did a lot of work figuring out what to name it. Uh, archaeologists found this letter and thousands of other letters in 1907 in an archaeological dig. This letter is part of the, let me get this right, Elephantine Papri. Okay, so the Elephantine Papri, the Elephantine scrolls were found in Egypt. Thousands of scrolls were found. And what do you think those thousands of scrolls documented? The book of Ezra, Nehemiah. And it's not biblical text, okay? It was written in Persian, it was written in like Egyptian, uh, it's written in Egyptian, it's written in, well, yeah, it's written from Israelite, from a Jewish perspective. It's written from all these different perspectives, and it tells of the same story, like the same story that we get to read about uh, in the Word of God. This is one of the reasons why the Smithsonian Museum, I don't know, a bunch of really smart scientists say this is the most historically accurate book ever written. As they try to denounce the historicity of the Bible, the historicity of the Bible always wins. Like the authority of the word always comes out and wins from a scientific perspective. And so this Passover letter was sent from a Persian king during the time of Ezra to actually teach the Israelites how to partake in the Passover. Like this Persian king just kind of thinks he's just like being political, bringing some peace to the land. But lo and behold, the Lord has put this desire in the heart of the king to help and allow the people of God to build out this temple. So much so, think about this, this is not a Jewish king. This is a guy that would have worshiped 40,000 other gods. He sends an official from the castle, we'll call it, to the temple of the people of God and teaches, this pagan man teaches the people of Israel how to worship God and how to partake in the Passover feast. Like that's the work that God was doing during this time. I think that's unbelievable. And what's cool about it then is it's, of course we believe the Bible, but when you have thousands of other documents written by thousands of other scholars and you get to read the same stuff, it's like, man, that's worth paying attention to. It's worth being excited about. It's cool. It's just fun. You didn't have to be a nerd. It's just cool stuff. So, Ezra then is then sent to teach the word of God to those people, but he doesn't come on the scene. I'm trying to be clear. He doesn't come on the scene, though, until chapter 7. So all of Ezra happens in the way that it happens to fulfill the prophecies then of Daniel and Jeremiah and beyond. The prophecy being that God will restore the people of God, and God will give back a land to the people, and God will restore the temple, which we know ultimately comes through Christ. And so the last thing I'll say about Ezra is this. Ezra chapter 1 just reads like this. For the sake of us doing work. Uh, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. This is why all of this is happening because God said it would. The Lord stirred up the spirit of king of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. And so God is just moving and working in the hearts and in the lives of unbelieving political officials to push forth, listen to me, his agenda, not theirs. His agenda, not theirs. In politics, they'll say something like the world stage, on the world stage, on the world. No, it's God's stage. He's sovereign. He's in control. And he's making things happen. The goal of Ezra Ezra then, rebuilding of the temple, reestablishing the people of God, giving back the land, and now calling them to the word, through the word, to worship. That's Ezra. It's the best I can do in like seven minutes, I think. That's only half of it though. Now we got the other half. You guys still with me? All right. This is important. You need to know the word. Uh, especially if we're gonna read Nehemiah. Okay, so the next then we have Nehemiah, the book that we're actually going to be in for 16 weeks, although there will be a bit of back and forth. Okay, so Nehemiah kind of somewhat simultaneously comes on the scene alongside. Uh, Ezra, Nehemiah is called to rebuild the, the temple wall for protection and for safety. Okay, 14 years after Ezra has begun building out the temple, Nehemiah comes in, takes him 52 days to get it done. Nehemiah works for the king as we read. The last line in that text was, I was a cupbearer to the king. Now, not the best job in the world, but you do get to drink a lot of wine, right? So some of the ladies are like, worth it, you know, let's just see. So, but what the cupbearer would do would actually taste this wine, and he would see if it had poison in it or not. Some of you are like, is it, I mean, like, is it Trader Joe's, or is it Aldi wine? Like, where are we, what, is it worth it or not? You know, some of uh, um let oh, me keep going. All right, so this means Nehemiah then was like very trusted, uh, very loved by the king, honored by the king, but still a servant, no less. So the things that he says to the king in chapter two, he ought not say, the book of Nehemiah begins the same way in Ezra, and that it begins by telling us that God put this desire into the king to build the wall. Now, there's a lot of controversy here, but that desire put in the king probably happens in that way because it's the same king. And so there is some debate about that, but I would submit to believe it is the same king for both Ezra and Nehemiah. But again, we have God placing a desire into the heart of one of the greatest emperors and empires that literally ever lived, that ever walked The earth. And so the king here is just aiming to be the king again, no different than Ezra because it's the same king. And he's aiming then to bring peace to the land. The king did not realize that God was moving in him to rebuild out the temple or to rebuild out the wall. But God continues to use him. Now again, God is not aiding in the king's political reign necessarily, but he is using the king to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament that this is what is going to happen. Well, what's the prophecy? What's the ultimate story of God? It is I will bring back a people, I will reestablish a land, I will rebuild my temple again, which we know is ultimately fulfilled uh, in Christ. And so Ezra and Nehemiah are about rebuilding. They're about fulfilling the promises of God to bring about a Messiah. They're about restoring land, redeeming people, pushing forth the seed of the Messiah, beginning in Genesis 1 all the way until Christ comes. It's the same story over and over again, just with different characters. And so the big main thing I want to say here is this. God is not just rebuilding uh, the temple and the wall, but in rebuilding the temple and the wall, God is really rebuilding Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, In the same way for us, as we learn about this building of the temple and the building of the wall over the next 16 weeks, I have no doubt that the Lord will also rebuild us in many ways, yeah? So last thing I need to note here is, in short, there are um, a few few political officials that we're going to run into in the book of Nehemiah as well. Uh, I was explaining this to one of our pastors, and he said, "Uh, that's our culture, but how does that relate to Nehemiah? I said, no, bro. I'm talking about Nehemiah right now. And he goes, oh, dang. And so there's just so many like similarities between what's happening then and what is happening now. So there's a couple governors in here. Uh, don't let any of our governors come to mind because I'm gonna say things that are political. I'm gonna talk about politicians here in the text. And what we're gonna try to do is like use our life and our history and some of our understanding of politics and read that into the text. That's not the goal for any of 16 weeks. It's to pull out of the text, okay? We're gonna exegete what's in the text in it Uh, For me, But it is hard to do, so wage war against your own temptation to do that. There's these governors that try to stop uh, Nehemiah from (laughs) building up this uh, wall. And at one point, like in these books, the governors are are going to invite Nehemiah to a party like three different times, and he won't go, and so he doesn't show up. You know, he doesn't want to show up on their socials. Like, he's uh, affiliated with these people over here, and so he abstains from that. And so then these politicians just straight create a whole smear campaign. Against him. And they just start giving literal fake news out to everyone. And they're like, oh, he wants to be king. And then now all these people want to try to take over and kill Nehemiah. And so all throughout the book, you have these governors that are kind of coming against him doing very similar things that we have done in our culture all the time just blatant lies blatant schmear campaigns there's all this nonsense and hostility a lot of political unrest there's a great deal of uh, cultural tension that's taking place between races and ethnicities and as we get into it you're going to go how can this be the same things that are happening four thousand years later well it's because people don't change very much do they History tends to repeat itself. And so what happens in these governor, uh, these governor officials are coming against Nehemiah and they complain long enough that there's a few different kings that come into power and they write a letter to a king named Darius, which we're not going to get into a lot of the kings. But for this moment, we're going to. Well, Darius does something crazy that political officials should do more. He actually reads the law, which is insane. And pretty conservative old King Darius, isn't it? He's like, let's see what the original documents would say. If only our politicians would read the Constitution, yes? And so he, King Darius finds somewhere, I believe, in his summer house in the mountains, <laughs> the original documents uh, written by King Cyrus that we heard about earlier. And it says not only are they allowed to rebuild the temple, rebuild the wall, but the government is going to fund the whole thing. And you're like, oh, dang, How did they shouldn't have complained so much, should they? So Darius writes back to these governors, which we'll get there in a couple chapters, and he says the royal treasury will pay for the rebuilding of the temple. And not only that, but the royal treasury will pay for all of the sacrifices necessary for the people of Israel to properly worship their God. And then he goes a step further, and he says, and if anybody has a problem with it, I'm going to put their family inside of their house, and I'm going to bulldoze that sucker down. And that's a legal document. I'm like, that's the guy I'd follow. That's what I'm... I follow that guy. He sounds like he knows what's up. It's sent from in a formal government document. And so uh, regardless of the government's efforts to bring down the walls, um, they simply uh, cannot. So might I even take a moment to remind you now that the government will simply never tear down uh, the walls that separate the saints from the rest of the world, will they? They'll never tear down the walls that separate the garden from the world, you could say it. Like that, And if we look at our original documents, a little something called, I don't know, the Constitution, uh, the government is not even allowed to exercise laws in a way that hinder our worship, similar to what we see here. It's actually what separation of church and state means, right? It's It's meant to actually protect us from the world, not to protect the world from us. That's the whole, I won't get into all of it, but you can read a little bit about Thomas Jefferson when you get bored this week. There's a wall of protection that the Constitution gives us, is what I'm trying to say. And so... Oh gosh, okay. So, Nehemiah then, let's get after it. Nehemiah then, that's the intro, as much as I can give you. Uh, Nehemiah is like a, a journal entry uh, from a very godly dude. I mean, it's unbelievable to get to walk through uh, what he writes out and the way that he handles these situations. It's, Nehemiah is written uh, by a man that is just gripped by the word of God. I mean, just infatuated uh, with the word of God, who cannot help but see the people of God Uh, restored and redeemed. He can't help but to see right worship happening uh, in his culture. He can't help but to strengthen those uh, who are around him. And he's a man who is willing to stand toe-to-toe against every single political sphere that could ever come in opposition to the church. He's just an incredibly godly dude. And so I want to encourage men throughout the next 16 weeks, right? 16 weeks we're going to be in Nehemiah. 16 weeks from now, I'm going to go on sabbatical. And I've been telling men all morning, my prayer is that whenever I leave to go on sabbatical, that there's 50 dudes that stand up and say, bring it on. Like, we're here to support. We're going to wage war against sin. We're going to make much of God's word. We're going to celebrate Jesus. We're going to punch Satan in his stupid face while you're gone. That's what I'm looking forward to. Men of God who, similar to Nehemiah, man, they want to lead, they want to grow, they want to learn, they want to stand as pillars in our society as the waves of culture crash against us, man. They're just rooted in the word of God. Like, bring it on. Let's go one wave after another. And so I pray that the Spirit presses you hard, men, over the next 16 weeks, not to downplay our ladies, uh, but our ladies kill it. Amen? So we're going to stir up some fellas. Sound good, ladies? Yeah, nudge your husband now if you want to. Uh, But I do think, last thing I'm going to say about this, last thing is, I do think 2024 is going to make 2020 uh, look like we had a volunteer party in the park. I don't know if you remember a little thing called COVID that happened in 2020. Uh, It was a terrible time for most of us. Uh, The church persevered. God did unbelievable things in our church, doubled us in size. We gave away tons of money, millions of pounds of food. It was unbelievable. And at the same time, we're still feeling the the, benefits, the effects of it, yeah. Just some things will never get back to 2020 stole, And I believe 2024 with the political unrest and the cultural tensions and um, all the things that's happening. The way I was talking to one of our other pastors about it, is like, like a pot begins to shake on the stove before it boils over. That's what I feel like our culture feels like right now. It's just shaking to a boiling point. And I think that it is going to require both men and women, but specifically because we're in the book of Nehemiah, uh, men who are willing to stand against those cultural waves and take a bashing that'll just get up again again and again and say, I woke up today ready to taste some salt. Bring it on again and again and again. I think Nehemiah will strengthen our church over the next 16 weeks. I think it has already strengthened me, and I'm excited to do it. You guys ready? If you're ready, say ready. (laughs) 20 minutes in. Big idea. Big idea. Uh, If you are too strong to weep, you are too weak to lead. If you're too strong to weep, you're too weak to lead. Shout out to Breeze Community who's watching from afar as well. Uh, three points I have for you. I tried to make them quick. <clears throat> weep for the people of God. Uh, know the word of God. And recall the promises of God. Weep for the people of God. Know the word of God. Recall uh, the promises of God. I'm going to kind of blitz through here. And then next week will be a little bit more uh, chill per usual. But there's a lot to cover today. All right. Weep for the people of God point number 1 all right it's the winter uh, the first couple verses basically explain this uh, it is the winter season uh, for Nehemiah he's in a winter fortress kind of in his in this palace with the king it's been 13 years since Ezra uh, has began building the temple wall. Ezra's been preaching the gospel to the people of the temple, uh, preaching, teaching, calling people uh, to respond, calling the Jews to respond, calling this remnant of 50,000 uh, Israelites to respond to the word of God, calling them back, just like King Josiah did just prior to them going into the exile. Well, Nehemiah is approached, as Timmy read earlier, Nehemiah is approached by a brother. That's just like a Jewish brother, Hananiah. Hananiah comes uh, with a message in verse 3, and it reads like this. And they said to him, "The remnant—that's those fifty thousand—therein, uh, the province uh, who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates." Are destroyed by fire. And so imagine with me then, like your grandparents or your great grandparents have been taken into captivity, and you know the stories and you've heard the stories, and you're just old enough to even maybe even have just come out of that exile or that captivity yourself. And you hear that they finally have returned and they're trying to rebuild their city and they're trying to rebuild their homes and they're reestablishing vocations. And then all of a sudden, like they come under attack by this enemy that is there. And the enemy is literally tearing down everything that they have sought to build. And so the wall that has now protected this temple, it's protected. Imagine like we finally get the worship in this church and we've kind of put up this parameter because there's hostility all around it. Not just because we're trying to like remove ourselves from the culture, but there's like literal, physical, enemy hostiles around our perimeter. And so we put up this wall, we've worked 80 years we've been working forever to get this thing done and then all of a sudden the walls literally just start coming down and you're thinking about like that's my family those are my grandparents i know what they've gone through that's kind of what nehemiah was happening there he's like these are my people it's my family they're under attack and so he's ripped by that i would say how do you respond how would you respond a little bit of anger a little bit of frustration maybe you're sad mad it's a little bit of everything in there at the same time right well how does he respond he weaves this man weeps, verse four, he says this. As I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. he hears everything that the people have worked for is about to be destroyed and he mourns. Like he, he weeps, he cries. Listen, Nehemiah is not weak, right? If He's not weak. He's torn by what is happening to the people. That's where the big idea comes in. If you're too strong to weep, church family, you are too weak to lead. Does that make sense? Like the, it's a right response. Nehemiah looks at the position that Israel is in, and he's moved to tears. Let me ask you this. When you look at the state of the church in America, are you moved to tears over her yet? Are you moved to mourn and to grieve? or to, I mean, do you even do the research to see what's happening in the church in America right now, and around the globe specifically, but because we're here in a America, let me ask you, when you look at the the way that the government and politicians and the rules and laws that are being put in place to hinder worship for the church in America, has it grieved you yet? There are some things that I've read about this week where laws have been written and they have literally grieved me. It's not like a slap on the wrist anymore anymore. Like I read this week, a 14-year-old little girl in Montana was ripped out of her family's house because her family would not submit to the reality that she wanted to be a boy. And so they didn't just come in, a political official thing, governing authorities didn't just come in and say, hey, you need to like give a little respect and give a little room here, just be more tolerant. DCFS, Child Protective Services, took the girl from the family. In Montana, put her in a group home and thought it would be better for her mental health to continue pushing down the road for her to begin identifying as an opposite sex, doing hormone therapy, something you cannot reverse. And so in our country, you can be 18 years old and get a tattoo that lasts forever. You have to be 18 to get tatted up. But you can be 14 years old to do something you can never reverse hormone therapy. And that's the governing authority for a Christian family to say, this is not what we believe. We don't submit to that. We don't know now what happened inside the house dynamic. What we do know is this. People stood on the word of God and said, this is something that we don't support. And the government stepped in and said, we'll support them. Oh, by the way, she now belongs to us as a ward of the state. Okay, things like that should lead us, regardless of where you fall, should lead us to grieve a little bit like lead us to grieve, it's becoming more and more difficult to simply maintain morality in our country, let alone worship Jesus. It is a difficult time for us. And so the pressure that the government's putting on the church to literally tear down our walls, I think should drive us to both worship and weeping, perhaps weeping as a form of worship. This is what Nehemiah models here, right? There's a mourning, listen, there's a mourning, there's a grieving, there is a tear-filled tears running down your eyes sort of reality that you have to enter into to drive action as a church, to drive action as a Christian. You have to literally look at the state of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, and behold, like here's what's happening. Get educated. Allow it to lead you to grieve. Why? So it puts unction in you. So it drives some action in you to actually be a change agent instead of just sitting there like a literal sheep doing nothing, following kind of everything that's happening in culture. Nehemiah looks at his culture. He sees what the government is doing to the church, and this man of God has led to tears, tears that drive action, church family. That's what is happening in the text. Some of the scripture says even, right, he's not the first. Jesus is the better Nehemiah to jump around. Jesus is the better Nehemiah. There's a reality where Jesus looks upon uh, the, the people. Some of them belong to him. Some of them do not. And Jesus looks upon the people and it says he had compassion for them. Why? Because they were just kind of floating around like sheep. Like the king was in the room and they did not know who to worship. And whenever Jesus looks upon the people and has compassion, he doesn't just, he's not like, oh my gosh, what a cute little stuffy you have there. He's like, you're my people and you're just kind of getting tossed about right now. And it drives him to literally the point of tears, the word compassion, Sorry, let me break the silence for you a little bit. The word compassion in the Greek is splognizome, fun word. I don't know how to write it. I don't know how to tell you how to take notes on it, though, okay? Splognizome. It literally means a disruption of the bow, okay? Like I was sliding in the first and I had, felt a little burst, you know what I mean? Like a literal <laughs> disruption of the bow is what that text is it's what the word in the Greek literally means. I'm going to take you somewhere, I promise, okay? little Spock on me, he said he had, what it literally meant was like his compassion in that text, his compassion, that little, I don't know, I always get off of it, that compassion forced in him, Jesus now, a physical reaction to the people, like what he was seeing, the compassion was so high, the mourning, so high, the grief of the situation, so high, it literally, like forced a visceral reaction to what was happening. He's not saying like, oh, he, he had compassion because they looked like cute little sheep. No, he's saying like, there, there had to be something to be done. Now we know the gospel and we'll get there in a minute. He is the answer to the situation. This is the same thing though that Nehemiah This happening in Nehemiah. There's a literal mourning, a grieving, a splokenizo Like there's something. There's a disruption. There's. It's so emotionally heightened. He's like, I have to respond to this thing. You guys tracking with that? Almost got us off, but I kept us there. Do you question? Do you have you wept for the bride of Christ? Wept over what is happening? Not just here. I mean, wept over the. Gosh, I don't have time. Wept over the realities of what is happening globally. Just globally. And people are dying right now. Every like 13 seconds so that we can worship like this. We should weep over those things, man. You can't weep over something you don't know anything about. Second point, know the word of God. If you don't know the word, you're not ever going to find yourself weeping. If you don't know what the Lord finds laughable and weepable, you will never find yourself doing the same things. You have to know the word of god if you don't know the word of god you're going to remain just kind of caught up in the cultural narratives that your freaking instagram algorithm gives you so it's no wonder you see the same things over and over again it's because they want you to remain sheep (laughs) that's why you see the same house the same people the same clothing line the same diy the same things over and over It's an algorithm just wants to keep you in this perpetual hamster wheel of being ignorant and dumb to what's happening around you that's the whole point. Of, that's the whole scheme of social media, right? You're the marketing. They're marketing to you so they can keep you stuck there over and over again. So we spend more time in social media than we do in the Word of God. We spend more time caring about the Super Bowl coming up next week than we do the Word of God. We'll allow the Super Bowl to affect our emotions, but not the state of the church in America. Why? Because we're not spending time in the Word. We're not allowing the Spirit, our Spirit to break for what breaks the Lord of God. And so we're we're calling, they're calling here, here, Nehemiah 5 through 7 is this. It says this. Let me get us on track. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome, listen how he talks about God. O Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Listen, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. He's just broken by what is happening to the people, uh, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. And so Nehemiah starts this prayer. This is like, uh, I think one of 12 prayers that we have in Nehemiah. Nehemiah starts with adoration in his prayer. He starts by giving acknowledgement to God. You are good. You are covenantly faithful. You are steadfast. Please listen to my prayers. Please hear me day and night, groaning, mourning, weeping, fasting, praying for my family, praying for me, praying for the church. This is what a godly person looks like, specifically godly men because of the text. Men, you want to know what's attractive to your ladies? Let them find you on your knees in the living room praying over the family in the morning when they wake up. Let them see you knelt down beside the bed at night on the way to bed. Let them see you curled up in a ball next to your babies at night if you have them praying over them and praying over their future. That's attractive. Amen, ladies? Right? Just let them catch you reading the Bible. How about that? That would be incredible. Nehemiah is here and he says, we have sinned. Me and my house, we have sinned. We've not kept the commands that Moses passed down. We've not kept the law. He doesn't look out as a man of God and say, man, look what everyone else is doing. He goes, no, I'm taking responsibility here. I have sinned. My family has sinned. We're part of the people of God. We're part of Israel. This is my responsibility. Oh, And then he stands up and moves forward. You ask then, like, how have we sinned? How do I sin when it comes to culture and politics, government, being a Christian man or woman? I read a Charles Spurgeon quote this week and said this, few men repent of remaining silent. Few men repent of remaining silent. That's convicting, challenging. I just don't want to get involved. It's not my place. It's not my, it is. It is your place. It is my place. Perhaps your sin is the same as as Nehemiah's. Have you kept the word of God faithfully now? Clearly the answer is no, yeah? Have you kept his statutes perfectly? Have you kept his rules? Absolutely not, right? If you do not know the word of God, you cannot keep his statutes. You cannot keep his rules. You cannot keep his commandments. You cannot even remind yourselves of the grace of the gospel that says you don't have to keep all of that. Praise God for Jesus. You're not going to be moved to tears by the grace and mercy of Jesus if you don't know the word. And so Nehemiah stands a, a pillar here in the culture, and he does so through confession. Like, may that be our first response to give adoration to God. Here's who you are. Oh, God, but here's who I am. There's adoration that is followed by confession men. How does Nehemiah lead? He weeps. He, he grow, his growing awareness of who God is basically clearly knows the word. He's quoting Moses for crying out loud. His growing awareness of who God is reveals to him how, the depths of his own depravity, and it leads him to tears. That's a good, godly, masculine thing to experience there. Like, oh, that we would be a church full of men who, who are so aware of Jesus and his glory and his perfection and his righteousness that we can't help but look in the mirror and go, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips like Isaiah. Just see a growing awareness in our own depravity. Perhaps your sin is the same as Nehemiah where you stood silent too long, not just silent in light of culture, but silent silent in light of your own confession. Perhaps today would be a good day for repentance as we move into communion a little bit, yeah? A few men repent of remaining silent, Charles Spurgeon says, Nehemiah leads, first he leads by giving God all the praise and then he leads through confession. Literally quoting scripture here as he does it. If you don't know what to pray in the house, just start reading the Psalms out loud. It'll be good enough for you, okay? If you don't know what to read, just start reading the Psalms. He says, we have sinned against you. Please hear my plea. Please save my people first adoration this is who you are secondly he moves in to here's who I am last point then is recall the promises of god Ooh, we might make it out 5:30 5 minutes 30 seconds recall the promises of god uh, 8 through 11 a bit to read but we'll get it Continuing to plead with the lord here in prayer keep in mind he says remember the word that you commanded your servants Moses saying and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He's mentioning the king, which we'll see him talk to in chapter two. And now I was a cupbearer to the king. And so Nehemiah knows the word of God. He's literally quoting scripture in his prayer. He uh, he does not just though like know the word. Like he's not coming in like a Pharisee we see in the scriptures. He's not coming in as someone who's kind of acts like they have it all together, acts like they have all their stuff in order they can quote to you the scriptures, but then you look at their private life and you're like, bro, there ain't nothing about you this Christian right now, right? That's not what he's doing. He's coming in as a man who's been gripped by the word of God and likewise clings to the word of God, quoting scripture, quoting Moses, recalling God's promises, recalling God's faithfulness, recalling all of the covenant faithfulness of God. If you don't know what that means, that means that he's looking at Moses and looking at all of these promises all throughout scripture that have led him to this moment. As he's looking at the state of the church, looking at the state of Israel, seeing the political unrest, seeing this war, and he's recalling, you've been here before, Lord. The people of God have been before, been here before and you have reigned supreme. Do it again. Do what you promised you would do. Restore the temple, restore the wall, restore the people of God, redeem them for yourself. Let your glory be known in the heavens and in the earth. Lord, would you just show off again? Show out again for us. That's what his prayer really is. You promised it to Moses. I've seen it before in the past. Could you do it right now? Listen, the only way that you're ever gonna be sustained in this culture is if God's faithful covenant, steadfastness, man, is constantly on your mind. Otherwise, you will look at the state of the culture, the state of the church, all that's going to happen here in 2024, and you will find yourself erratic and full of anxiety if you're not recalling the promises of God. It turns out this ain't the first time a president's been elected, is it? And it unfortunately won't be the last time, will it? Not the first time a king's been put in power. Not the first time there's been political unrest. But as you look at the word of God and you see his faithfulness over and over again. Listen, as he pushes forth his mission, not man's mission, he comes out on top. And you go, what should we recall? How do I do? What, how do you move from, I don't know, adoration and confession? How do you weave? What, how do you get a little splag knees You might not want any splag knees now that I've explained it to you. Here's the deal. For us as Christians on this side of the cross, church family, we look at Jesus. You, you look at the one who has wept for you. Right? There's a there's a short little verse in the Bible there in chapter John. that's Jesus what? Wept. Wept. Shortest verse in the whole Bible. If you're like, I've never memorized a verse before, pastor. That's an easy one for you. You got it. You can do that one. There's a reality where Jesus weeps, man. One of his good friends, his cousin, dies, and he knows he's going to heal him. He takes three days to get there because he's Jesus. Had some other stuff going on. Uh, he walks up on the grave of Lazarus, and there's this point in the story, and it says, Jesus... <laughs> wept, that Jesus, he didn't weep just because he, he's some coward. Jesus is the strongest man to ever walk the planet. He weeps because he has such a disdain for sin. Like the ultimate effects of sin is death. Ultimately, that's what sin is going to bring you. It's going to bring you death whenever it's habitual and ongoing. And in the end of our days, it's just the ultimate effect. And if we were to exegete that text, look at that text and dissect that text, we would see Jesus weep tears for a lot of different things. But one of the things he weeps tears for is just the level of hatred that he has towards sin. And so he shows up to the the grave there. He calls Lazarus out. He sees everyone weeping. He sees everyone crying. In that moment, he's really no different than Nehemiah. He's looking at the state of the people. He's looking at the situation. He's looking at the very real spiritual battle that's taking place there. The walls have been broken down between the unrighteous and the righteous, between sinner and the saint, between heaven and earth. And he comes back to be the one to build up that wall. He's not building, Jesus doesn't come to build some wall to separate us from society and keep us from living on mission or say, hey, we got it all figured out over here with our conservative biblical values. You guys go, no, he builds up a wall so that we can look upon the promises of God, see Jesus doing all the things that Nehemiah couldn't do. Nehemiah said, I haven't kept your statutes. I haven't kept your rules. I haven't kept your commands. I don't always, you know, he's recalling the promises, but I don't always walk out covenant faithfulness. What does Jesus do? He comes as the better Nehemiah. And he says this, I have kept your commands, and I have kept your laws, and I have kept your decrees. Matter of fact, I'm your very word that is put on flesh, walked among the people. You want to know the word of God? You want to stand on the word of God? You look to Jesus as the word that is put on flesh, walks in perfection. Why? Because we can't. can't walk in perfection. can't walk perfectly moral. We don't have it all figured out, do we? No, but Jesus did. And then Jesus goes to the cross so that all the effects of sin in the world could come against him. That's what he does. It's not that he just died so you can end up in heaven one day. That's so true, but it's also very juvenile and simple. Jesus goes to the cross so that every single effect of sin that's ever happened to you, through you, happened around you, all the ripple effects of that sin can come into Jesus Christ Why? So he takes on the wrath of God in that moment so he can give you righteousness, give you his perfection, give you his Holy Spirit, bring you back to new life, rejuvenate. All these incredible things happen. Why? So that you can abstain from the culture, so you can separate yourself, so you can put up proverbial walls around you? No. In that moment, he breaks down the walls of hostility that separate you from him so you can rebuild a better kingdom, so you can rebuild a better temple. So the walls that we get to build of the church are that of a safe haven for people that are hurting and longing for someone better. That someone better is Jesus. He redeems, he sustains, he's the better Nehemiah, and every single chapter is gonna point to him because every single chapter points to him, amen? I want y'all to stand, we're gonna take communion. Uh, Every week we take communion together as a family, and so this week will be no different. Uh, If you're the guests in the house, and there are many of you, uh, you don't have to be a member or anything to take uh, communion here at Heights, but we do ask that you have responded to the gospel, uh, no different than anyone else who's uh, been at Heights for a season now. So communion is a a reminder um, of what Jesus has done for us, and uh, so in a moment when you come forward, uh, you'll see a piece of bread, uh, or you have it packaged as well, but you'll see a piece of bread, you just simply take the piece of bread out, represents Christ's body, uh, broken for you, in your place. Uh, as your substitute and you'll see the cup which represents Christ's blood spilt in your place uh, as your substitute. It's the ultimate reminder that we don't keep the statues and we don't keep the promises and we don't keep the law of God uh, perfectly. And when we fail to do so, there's grace and mercy uh, that's found in Christ. And so um, as you come forward, kind of keep that in mind. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, uh, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Uh, Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death uh, until he comes. And so ultimately, communion is a reminder that that there there used to be a wall that separated us from him. Uh, There was... That, law, that that wall was called the, the law, the very law that Nehemiah is talking about. We've not kept your statutes. We've not kept your decrees. We've not kept your commandments. The Jews thought that you had to keep everything. You had to be morally perfect, perfectly sound, to be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, but the problem with their understanding of how to be in relationship with God is it actually built a wall around them and around every everything that they did, actually isolated them from all the people they were called to live on mission for. Uh, we fall into the same category as we come in here and we listen to sermons like, hey, you're not, we don't weep, we don't mourn, we don't, the thing that can happen is you can turn to guilt, you can turn to shame, or you can turn to Jesus, and you can go, hey, I don't mourn for those things. I don't think about the state of the church. I'm not a paid pastor. I do just kind of doze off into social media. But right now, the book of Nehemiah and Jesus by spirit is calling you out of that. And this is an opportunity to confess, hey, I haven't mourned, I haven't wept, I don't care. God, could you just renew my heart for your bride? as the bride of Christ. Could you restore to me the joy of my salvation? Help me actually care that our family's under attack right now. Could you restore that to me? And as you come forward, then you get to take and eat and drink and be reminded of the gospel that he is the answer and He is the only solution for any of us in this room. And so for those of you who are in Christ, as a meal is for you. You come forward when you're ready.